All right, good evening, everyone. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for those of you who are in the room or joining us online this evening. What I want to do as a start is take you back all the way to the beginning uh, of my own story in ministry, my own story in preaching. You know, when I came out of high school and knew that that God was calling me toward being a pastor, this was during a season and in a time in the the church in the United States of America where where it was very popular, the idea that I heard and read in books and in seminars and in talks and in classes was the idea that the way to preach, the way to build a church, the way to talk to people, especially young people, whether it be teenagers or young adults, is to do everything you can in sermons not to talk about difficult things. And so the idea was that there are kind of these rough edges of Christianity, and if you would just kind of push those to the side and focus on how to pray and how to have a happy friendship and how to be a good person and how to serve people and how to love people, just focus on the things no one disagrees with. That's how you preach, and that's how you build a church, because young people don't want to hear hard things. This is what I was taught over 11 years ago. I began my preaching here at this church, and in my time preaching here at this church, and to young people all over the state, all over the region, here's what I've learned. That that advice, though well-intentioned, is completely, entirely, utterly, wildly wrong. Here's what I've learned about young people, including yourself. Here's what I've learned about teenagers, about young people, about human beings in general. It's that you want to think about difficult things. You want to confront hard things. No one's here tonight. No one's listening online, wasting their time, just wanting to be told things they already believe. I've learned that people are willing to hear hard things. People are willing to engage and wrestle with the most difficult subjects of God and of the scriptures. And this part has surprised me too. I've learned that there are people in churches, maybe even some of you, who are willing to hear things you disagree with and still stay leaned in on the mission of the church because it was always about something bigger, someone bigger. It was always about Jesus. You don't have to listen to me preach for very long to learn that I'm someone who wants to talk about difficult things and hard things. And I believe that's been my preaching strategy. That's been where I've gone for for the last decade or more preaching at this church. And here's why I bring that up tonight. I start with that story because I want everyone here tonight, everyone listening online or listening to this podcast later, to understand this, that tonight we're going to talk about one of those difficult subjects. Tonight is going to be one of those nights where we continue our relationship series and look at one of the most difficult, tricky, emotion-filled, sticky subjects when it comes to the scriptures. See, tonight we're going to talk about the subject of homosexuality. Tonight, we're going to talk about what the Bible says about homosexuality. And here's what I know. The moment I say that word, there are all sorts of emotions and ideas and floods of experiences and opinions and values and history and people you know and experiences in the church that rush into your mind. I know for every single person here, the temperature in the room has gone up since you heard me say that word. I understand that in this room we have a vast variety of people. For some of you, you hold to the traditional Orthodox Christian teaching about homosexuality and it's not even a question for you. Others of you have rejected it out of hand as out of step with the 21st century and not even worthy of our consideration in this space. 
Some of you are legitimately confused and trying to hold on to what you think the Bible teaches, but also trying to love your sisters and brothers and roommates and friends and acquaintances and co-workers in this world. There are people in this room who are going to be angry that I'm speaking about this tonight. There are people who are going to walk away tonight and not want anything more to do with us. I understand the vast amount of difference that exists in this room. But I want to begin tonight not by talking about any of those things. Because there's a particular type of person who is either present in this room, watching online live tonight, or watching this video later, who I understand that I want to speak to first. I understand that you're here. I understand that you're listening. And that is those of you for whom the subject of homosexuality is not a theory, an idea, or an issue. But for you, it is a part of your lived experience It's a part of your life. It's a part of your story. It's a part of your struggle. And tonight I want to speak to you. And tonight I want you to understand the weight I've walked into with this sermon. The heaviness that I felt. The the amount of weight I felt sitting upon my shoulders as I come into this sermon. And that weight that sits on my shoulders is not because I'm not confident in what the Bible says. And not because I'm unsure uh, about what the Bible teaches. No, I am totally confident in what the Bible teaches. And I'm totally confident in God's good design for sexuality. What I am not totally confident in is me, is my flesh. See, here's what I know. Plenty of pastors have gotten up and given sermons about homosexuality. And in so doing have wounded and harmed and abused and maligned and dismissed. Some of you may be even in this room. Like I come into this with a weight and a heaviness knowing how difficult this subject can be to talk about, how difficult this is. Like I want you to know I don't come into tonight flippantly. Like this has been a week of prayer on my face even before I came out of the green room tonight just praying, God, don't let me get in the way of this. This has been a week of fasting and seeking the Lord. I don't share that often publicly. But I want you to know this is not something I take lightly because I know for so many of you, This is not an idea or a subject or a theory. This is a lived experience. This is part of your history, perhaps part of your present, and something that the church has done a very poor job addressing, thinking about, talking about, and handling. So here's why I want to start tonight. I want to start by speaking to you. If the subject of homosexuality isn't a subject, an idea, or an issue for you, but part of your lived experience... Again, this might be true for some of you in the room. It might be true for some of you who are listening online tonight. What I want to do is say this. I want to say seven things we need to say up top to you. If homosexuality is not some theory, idea, or issue for you, but part of your lived experience. Number one, here's what I want to say. We repent of the ways we may have harmed you. Here's what I want to recognize. Um, I don't speak for every Christian here at this church, but I certainly do speak for the leadership of young adults and the leadership of Calvary in general. And if there's been ways that we have wounded you, harmed you, belittled you, dismissed you, made jokes about you, maybe something's been said in a sermon that wounded you in ways we don't even know, I want to sit here tonight in front of each of you and repent of that. I want to turn from that. I want to own our sin If you would ever be comfortable to tell us in in an email, in a direct message, in a face-to-face conversation, we would welcome that. We would welcome that so you could come tell us, not so we could defend ourselves or tell you why you're wrong, but so that we can repent of any ways we haven't acted in love and in the kindness and the grace and the mercy and the goodness of Christ. 
Listen, I don't speak for every Christian at this church, but I do speak for our leadership when I say, if there is any way we have wounded you, we want to own that. We want to repent of that. Second thing I want to say tonight is we want to grieve the way others have harmed you. We want to grieve the way others have harmed you. Again, if homosexuality is part of your lived experience, we want to grieve the way that others, maybe even others who are Christians, have harmed you. I don't think I'm the only Christian in this room who would articulate it this way to say that sometimes the hardest part about being a Christian is seeing what other Christians do in the name of Christ. Sometimes the hardest part about being a follower of Jesus is seeing the way other followers of Jesus treat you, have treated you. Maybe you've been wounded, mocked, belittled, shouted out, shouted out, excluded, and I want you to know that I can't own someone else's sin, but I can grieve with you if that's been your story. So number one, we want to repent of any ways we of a church has harmed you, have not loved you, have not lived up to the high calling of love that God has for our church and our leadership. The second is we want to grieve with you. If you've walked through pain for others, we can't repent for their sins, but we can grieve with you for the ways they've wounded you. The third thing I want to say to you, if homosexuality is part of your lived experience, your past or your present, a temptation for you, something that's in your life, I want you to know that you are created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. You're created in God's image. Genesis chapter one says all human beings, male and female, are created in God's image and therefore are worthy of respect, honor, dignity. I want us to know here at this church, there's no place for jokes, for coarseness, for meanness or rudeness toward any person, much less someone who's wrestling with homosexuality. I want you to know that you are created in God's image and have as much value as any other human being in this room, myself and anyone else included. You're created in the image of God and worthy of all dignity and respect in any place we haven't showed that. Again, I just want to repent of tonight. Number four, I want you to know you are loved, welcomed, treasured, and wanted at this church. This church welcomes you. This church wants you. If this is part of your story, I don't want you to think for even a moment that somehow this isn't a place you can come and worship, seek after Jesus, and know his great love for you. I used to say all the times that the mats in front of our doors have always said welcome. And then someone pointed out to me that they actually say Calvary Community Church. So so that didn't really work. So it's not true literally, but it's true in spirit. We welcome you. We want you here. We treasure you. We care about you. I don't want you to think for a moment that if this is your struggle, if this is your issue, if this is the thing you've lived with, that somehow you're not wanted and welcomed in our church, in our small groups, and in what we do here. Number five, I want to remind you that you have spiritual gifts, passions, abilities, and something to contribute to the mission of this church. Not for a single moment do I want us to think that the subject or the issue or the struggle with homosexuality is the only thing that's important about you. If you are a child of God, the Bible promises God has given you spiritual gifts, you have a mission, you have a task on this earth, and it is not at the center of it your sexuality, at the center of it is your Savior who calls you to love and serve the world through his church. And I want to invite you into that. Uh, Again, I just don't want to set up anything where somehow that's the most important thing for us to talk about with you here. I want you to know that you have gifts, passions, spiritual gifts, and a purpose here in this world and here in this church. Number six, I want to say this, and this might be an aspirational goal, but as the leader here in this room, I want to say this. You can openly share about your life, 
struggles and faith at this church. Maybe you don't feel like that's the case. Maybe you go, I would never share that at this church. I would never open up in a small group. I would never share that with Pastor Brian or I'd never share that with you, Brian. And I want you to know if that's not the case, I grieve that because that's what I want for our church. For you to be able to bring what you're struggling with, bring what your life is, to not have to hide and pretend here at this church, but rather to share your struggles, to share what's going on in your life. I want our small groups to be a place where someone can share about their same-sex attraction in the same way that we share about everything else that goes on in our lives and in our stories. And if not, that's not the case now. I'm committed to leading us to be the type of church where people, including those who homosexuality is part of your lived experience, can share openly at this church. And then finally, can I just speak these three words over you? If you would say homosexuality is part of your lived experience, three words. God loves you. God loves you. He's crazy about you. He's wild about you. He loves you. He knows you. He sees you. He's wild about you. I want you to know that there are all sorts of Christian movements and Christian ideas that fly under the banner of Christianity that have perverted that idea. Most famously is a church, and I say church in scare quotes because I don't believe they know the gospel at all. But it's a church, and I won't use their vulgar language, but it says God hates those who are homosexual. God hates those who are homosexual. And I'm here tonight to say that that lie can go back to the pit of hell from whence it came. God loves you. God is for you. God demonstrates his own love for you in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God is love and God loves you. I want to open tonight by speaking to those of you who this is part of your life, your lived experience, your struggle. It's part of your history, part of your present. Perhaps it will be part of your future. I want you to know that the God of the universe is crazy about you. And he loves you. Now I want you to understand tonight as I've reflected on these seven things up front, these have come not only from my pastor's heart, but from what I understand is true about the Bible. And every single thing I said tonight, I believe can be backed up with biblical text and biblical scripture. And it's that same Bible that I want to turn to this evening when we try to answer the question, what does the Bible have to say about homosexuality? And in order to do that, I want to show you this. I want to show you that the Bible has explicit commands about homosexual eroticism. I want to show this to you. The Bible have, it has explicit commands about homosexual eroticism. Now you're going to notice I'm going to use a phrase, a term tonight, homosexual eroticism. I'm using that on purpose and I'm using that very carefully. I'm using that because the Bible does not have commands for us about orientation, about feeling, about the temptation. It's not talking about those things. It is talking not about a feeling, not about an orientation, not about a temptation, not even about a love and a friendship and an intimacy that two people may have. The Bible is talking about an act, a sexual act. So when I say homosexual eroticism, I am saying that the Bible refers to specific acts between individuals that are homosexual in nature. I'm using that phrase. There's a lot of other phrases we could use or talk about. I'm using that phrase so I can be specific. That we're not talking about an emotion, an orientation, or a feeling. Tonight I want to talk about a behavior, an action. 
I want to try to answer what the Bible has to say about it. You'll see these verses that explicitly reference homosexuality, homosexual eroticism. Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's more going on than homosexuality there, but not less. You'll see Leviticus 18 and 20, where in the law of Moses, it's given to us as a law. You'll see Romans chapter 1, where Paul references it. 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. Now, now tonight, I could spend hours and hours going through each text, and, and, and perhaps sometime if you want me to, I can. But that's not my intention tonight. I want to zero in on one of these texts that I think will help us unpack this, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so if you have your Bible there, I would love for you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 9 here. I want to try to answer the question what the Bible has to say about homosexuality in general and homosexual eroticism in particular. Here's what it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now you'll notice this phrase here, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God doesn't necessarily refer to heaven, although it includes heaven. The kingdom of God is wherever the rule and reign of God is made manifest. So in heaven right now, God rules and reigns perfectly on earth. God is the ruler, but his rule and reign is not made manifest. Meaning the earth is not going exactly as how God would intend for it to be under his perfect rule and reign. That's why Jesus prays, your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, the kingdom of God breaks into humanity when God's rule and reign is being made manifest. And so here's what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about the type of person who will inherit the kingdom of God who will one day be made in the fullness of the kingdom of God, in glory, in eternity, saved from their sins, in heaven forevermore, that person who's going to inherit the kingdom of God, it says that wrongdoers will not inherit that. Now, if you've never read anything in the Bible before, or if you've never looked seriously at the scripture, you might be tempted to think that means this. If I ever do bad things, I don't get to go to heaven. And if that were the message I was sharing tonight, that would be a terrifying message because myself and none of you listening online or in the room would be going to heaven, right? All of us are wrongdoers. So what is Paul referencing here when he talks about wrongdoers? He is talking about the type of person who does not turn and confess and repent of their sin, but rather chooses to walk in their sin without repentance, without recognition, who walks in persistent, unrepentant sin. Like in other words, the way I want to put it to you tonight is this, that those who live in persistent, unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. I believe that's what this verse is teaching. And because of that, I believe tonight's conversation really matters. You see, there are tons of Christians who will ask the question, perhaps after this sermon, why do we even have to talk about this? Can't we just agree to disagree? Some people feel one way, some people feel the other way. Why can't we just leave this subject alone? And the answer tonight is this, is that if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you need to turn from your sin rather than embrace it. And I say this tonight because all of the pressure, all of our culture, everything around me, the ocean that you and I swim in is pressing me and pressing you toward believing that homosexuality is no big deal. 
And I want you to understand how much pressure there is on me to get up here and to be the hip young pastor who tries to communicate that it's no big deal, let's not worry about it, and let's move on. But here's the truth that this text is teaching. If it is true that those who walk in unrepentant sin, meaning you don't care about your sin, you're embracing it, it's persistent, you don't care about it, it's not that you're wrestling with sin. You wrestling with sin shows that you've inherited the kingdom of God. You turning from your sin, you stumbling in your sin, that shows you've inherited the kingdom of God. But if I were to get up here and tell you that something the Bible calls sin is not sin, that would not be loving, that would not be kind, it would be deeply, eternally cruel. Because if the Bible tells us that those who walk in persistent, unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God, it is not loving of me to tell you that sin is no big deal. See, tonight, this is not something I can just kind of brush to the side. As much as I would want to, as much as it would be easier for me to take a position I don't think the Bible teaches and be accepted and loved by the culture, I simply cannot do that if the stakes are this high, if the stakes are high enough to influence who receives the kingdom of God. It goes on this way in verse nine, in the middle part, it says, do not be deceived. And so you'll actually see this phrase, this command all throughout the Bible, do not be deceived. Like the Bible assumes that you're going to be deceived, hoodwinked, confused, otherwise swept away into a culture. It assumes this is going to happen to you. It assumes that Christians living in the first century would be deceived by something. It assumes Christians living in the 21st century will be deceived by the ideas, philosophies, and worldviews that the world and the culture have. And here's my concern for some of you. My, my concern for some of you, some of you who are Christians, my concern for some of you is that you have so imbibed the culture around you that your version of Christianity fits perfectly in 21st century America. And I want you to know that if your version of Christianity fits perfectly in 21st century America, something is off with your Christianity. Something is wrong with your worldview. Something is wrong with how you see the Bible if it fits perfectly with all of the cultural and moral norms of our time today. Tim Keller puts it this way, I love it. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. I love that phrase. Like in other words, if you just happen to look at the Bible and every time you see it, it happens to agree with it, what you already agree with, you're not worshiping God. What you're doing is you're looking at yourself and going, God must believe what I believe. God couldn't disagree with someone like me. And you're ultimately not worshiping God, you are worshiping an idealized ultimate version of you. Now listen to me tonight. I believe this happens to people on every side of the ideological, political, and theological spectrum. Uh, let me begin this way. I believe this happens to those who identify themselves as conservatives. Those who would say you're conservative, whether it be theologically, politically, worldview-wise. Here's what I believe. Conservatives often assume that the Bible agrees with them on what to do with money and power. This is what conservatives, and if you consider yourself conservative, I want to challenge you that conservatives often look at the Bible and assume it agrees with them on what to do with money and what to do with power. So you assume that the Bible supports a low tax rate, or you assume that the Bible supports your view on immigration or on foreign conflict and wars and military power. You just assume that the Bible agrees with everything a modern conservative would agree with. And my concern for you is that if you never let the Bible speak prophetically to your political and ideological worldview, you will start worshiping an idealized version of yourself. 
Listen, conservatives often assume the Bible must agree with my view of power and of money. But now let me speak to those of you who would call yourself more progressive. See, listen, progressives don't wiggle their way out of this because progressives often assume that the Bible agrees with them on what to do with bodies. With bodies. That comes to sexuality and sex and homosexuality and transgenderism and abortion, all of these different issues. And so many on the progressive end of the theological or political or ideological spectrum just assume that if there's a God, he'll agree with them on subjects concerning the human body. And whether you're a liberal conservative, progressive, or something else. I just want to challenge you to not start to, to not believe in a God who happens to agree with all the things you agree with. Sometimes the Bible should challenge you, discomfort you, make you struggle, and make you wrestle through things. Like I don't want you to believe in a Christianity that just fits neatly with what you've always believed. Because it's not real biblical faith. It's something else entirely. See, let's get into what the Bible is going to teach us. It tells us, do not be deceived. And then it goes on to say this in verse 9. It says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with other men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see again that there are people who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Again, not those who struggle, not those who repent, not those who wrestle with their sin, but those who walk in persistent, unrepentant sin that says, forget you, God, I'm going my own direction. And it names 10 sins, 10 specific things that the Bible here in what's called a vice list in the New Testament is naming a sin. 10 things. It talks about the sexually immoral, the idolaters, idolaters, the adulterers, men who have sex with other men. That's actually two words that we'll get to in a second. Thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, or swindlers. Ten sins. None of us would look at the ten sins on this list and go, those are acceptable, celebrated, good, right things. All of us would look at this list and say, these are things that are listed and meant to be sin. But then here's what we encounter here. It says here in the beginning, or right in the middle of it, Men who have sex with other men. And this is what we're going to drill into tonight. I told you that this isn't in the Bible a bunch of words. It's two Greek words specifically. And I want to show you how it translates because your Bible might say something a little different than what this says here. Let me show you a bunch of translations of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 when it comes to this specific phrase, this specific, these two specific words. The NIV says men who have sex with other men. The NASB says the effeminate or homosexuals. The ESV talks about men who practice homosexuality. The NRSV talks about male prostitutes or sodomites. The New King James Version talks about homosexuals nor sodomites. And the New, the New English Translation talks about passive homosexual partners and practicing homosexual partners. Two words in Greek. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to drill into those two words and try to understand what Paul is actually commanding here. The Bible was not written in English. It was written in the New Testament in Greek. And it's important that we look at these two words because it is essential that we understand if Paul is or is not forbidding what it appears he is forbidding here. So here's the first word we're going to look at. The first word found in this text is the word malakoi. Malakoi. You'll see it here in the Greek language. You'll see it here transliterated into English. The word malakoi literally means the soft ones, the effeminate ones. This is not talking about women. This is not even talking about men who have an effeminate appearance. 
It is talking about a specific part of a sexual act. It is talking about the part of the sexual act that is typically played by women. Uh, Again, this is where we said this sermon is PG-13. The Bible is not going to skirt around hard things. It's not going to ignore things. When it uses malakos, it is talking about the passive partner in a sexual act. The Greek word malakos describes the passive homosexual partner in a sexual act. The soft one, the one who receives, the one who is penetrated, this is what is being talked about. Again, this makes you uncomfortable. This is not my goal. My goal is to be clear about what the Bible is teaching here. The first word malikos refers to the passive receiving partner in the homosexual sexual act and sexual eroticism. The, the second word that you're going to see here in the text is the word arsenotokos. Arsenokoitis, pardon me. Arsenokoitis, again, you're going to see it here in Greek. You'll see it again here transliterated into English. This is the first time in Greek literature this word ever shows up. Paul actually takes two words and pushes them together. The first word, arson, is the Greek word for man or male. It describes a male. And the next word is the word coitus, which actually even in our language means sex, but actually literally in the Greek language meant bed. So literally, arson, which means male, and coitus, which means bed, this means men bedders, the one who brings the man to bed. Here's what arsenicoitus is describing. Here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, you'll find the same word in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. The Greek word arsenicoitus is describing the active partner in a homosexual act. The active homosexual partner. The one who penetrates, the one who gives. This is what is being described here. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 is going to use this phrase in Greek. It's two words, and here's what we see here. We'll see them both on the screen. The Greek word malikos describes the passive homosexual partner in a sexual act. The Greek word arsenokoitis describes the active homosexual partner in a sexual act. You'll see the same words used in Hebrew in the book of Leviticus when it's described in 18 and 20. You'll see the same idea described in Romans chapter 1. You'll see this all throughout the scripture that the Bible is describing not an orientation, not a feeling, not a temptation, not a thought, not a relationship of mutual love and affection. It is describing an act, an activity, a sexual act that is being described here with these two words. And here's the conclusion I reach that I have to reach from the scriptures. That the universal, unambiguous, and unequivocal witness of the Bible is that homosexual eroticism is sin. It's sin. When I say universal, I mean it's the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can't write it off as just some random thing in Leviticus. It's found throughout the entire, the universal scope of Scripture. It is found in Scripture. It is the unambiguous, meaning it's not describing some random thing or something we don't know of or a word we've never heard of in the Greek language. It's describing something we are aware of and they are aware of. And then finally, it is the unequivocal teaching of Scripture, meaning it doesn't give you an out, it doesn't try to eject, it doesn't say, no, no, this isn't a big deal. It is the teaching of Scripture that homosexual eroticism is sin. Again, we're trying to answer the question tonight, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does the Bible say about this subject that is swirling around us at all times? And here's what I believe. I believe that this is the universal, unambiguous, unequivocal witness of Scripture. 
But I'm also aware that there are plenty of people, perhaps in this room, perhaps listening online, who do not believe that this is the teaching of Scripture, who object to this, who have problems with this, who do not care for this interpretation or for this conclusion. And so here's what I want to spend the rest of our time doing tonight. I just want to reflect on some of the objections to this idea, some of the objections to this statement. In fact, what I want to give you as we close here is 12 objections to this statement that you may hear, hold, or have. 12 objections that you may hear, hold, or have toward the statement I've made, the homosexual eroticism, according to the Bible, is sin. Um, There are maybe more objections, and I may not get to spend enough time lingering on each one, but I want to try to be honest enough to receive objections rather than just be the pastor who gets up here, says it's sin, go deal with it. I want to try to wrestle with those together with you this evening. So here's the first objection you may have heard. This is a biblical objection. It's this, that homosexuality is only referenced a few times in the Bible and never by Jesus, so it's not a big deal. Here's the problem. Jesus doesn't reference homosexuality specifically, but he does reference porneia which we have referenced as sexual immorality. Jesus does talk about marriage being between one man and one woman. But even if we were to take the premise of the argument that it's referenced only a few times in scriptures and never by Jesus, I would still find that argument to be lacking because we don't apply that to anything else. So here's what I want us to realize. You may say there are only six scriptures about homosexuality or eight scriptures, however you want to count them about homosexuality. But here's the problem for all of us to wrestle with in our day and age. There are zero scriptures that explicitly use the word racism in the entire Bible. Jesus never explicitly talks about racial issues and the color of one's skin and the injustice associated with that. But I don't think anyone in this room would say, let's not talk about it. It's not a big deal just because it's not referenced by Jesus explicitly. In fact, the fact that it's never referenced by Jesus explicitly doesn't stop us from seeing the whole of Scripture, how God has a concern for justice, for the poor, for the oppressed, for the immigrant. And if we're going to go this wide-scope lens, we've also got the wide-scope lens, not just of God's justice, but of his demands for holiness, especially and particularly in the area of sexuality. See, when people say there's only a few references in Scripture, I get troubled by that. Because there's only two references in Scripture to a Scripture we quoted earlier about people being created in the image of God. In the Psalms and in the book of Genesis, that's the only two times. And yet our entire value of human beings is built on the idea that every human being is built in the image of God. And yet there's only two verses on it. So I never want to get into a place where we say, oh, there's only a few verses that explicitly mention it, so let's object to it. I want to say that even though there's only these few verses, these few verses mean something. They're given to us for our clarity and given to us for our instruction. So that's the first one, only a few verses. The second objection I hear is this, that the word homosexuality was not added to the Bible until 1946. Now, this is part of the issue with language. Language changes and it molds and it shapes. Those two words we looked at, malakos and arsenicoitus, those have been in the Bible since the first century. They weren't added, they weren't thrown in there, they weren't given. There's actually a documentary that's coming out that's going to argue that somehow they changed the Bible in 1946. And it's just untrue. The Greek words have been there. And words have changed throughout the English language. And perhaps the word homosexuality wasn't in there. Other words were in there that implied the exact same meaning for the people at the time. Again, you might hear that. I just don't believe that's a strong argument given the nature of the text that we have in front of us. 
The next one is this. It's a definitional objection. It's this, and you may hear this, that the Bible is not referencing loving, consensual, adult, homosexual relationships. Oftentimes, the way it's framed is either as two things. One would be, no, this is referencing male prostitution. And the other argument is that this is referencing what's called pedestry. And this isn't a thing in our culture, but in the ancient world, men and teenage boys, adolescent boys would have sex together. And some have argued that's what the Bible is referencing. The problem here is that Paul uses the word prostitute later on in this chapter in a text we actually studied last summer where it talks about prostitution. If he meant to say that, he could have. There's a Greek word, uh, pydros, for uh, pedestry, uh, where we get our word pedophilia from that Paul could have used. He didn't use it. So often we want to say that this isn't referring to loving, consensual, adult, homosexual relationships. And again, I just want to argue, based on these words we've studied tonight, it absolutely is. This is what the scriptures are referencing. The next is the chronological objection. We could put it this way. Shouldn't we just move beyond the parts or verses in the Bible that seem outdated? And this is a struggle for me. This may seem convincing to you because there are parts of the Bible that we don't obey, right? There are parts of the Bible, like the book book of Leviticus, that we seem to move past as Christians, and yet we don't move past it as Christians because somehow we think that's outdated and we're smarter. It's because that was under a different covenant. We live under the new covenant, the covenant of Jesus Christ shed for us in his blood. That covenant is given to us through the New Testament. Testament literally means covenant. So when I look to the New Testament and see the commands of God, I recognize this isn't something I can dismiss. This isn't something I don't have to live by, like I'll see some of the commands in the Torah in the Old Testament. This is something we have to live under. This is something that God gives to us for our good and for his glory. This is something we can trust when it comes to God's good design for sexuality. Again, I believe we just don't get to move past parts of the scripture we don't like. This would be so easy for us if we could just pick the parts of Scripture we liked and go with those. But that's not what God calls us to. We don't get to hit the eject button on Scriptures just because they seem outdated to us in our time, in our age. I want to show the next one. This might be one of the harder ones for me to respond to, but I want to respond to it. It's a personal one. Like, how can you, a straight, married man, tell other people not to get married or have sex? And I want you to know that this is a difficult one for me. Not because I'm unclear on what the Bible teaches, not because I'm wrestling with whether or not I think God thinks it's right or wrong. I just want to wrestle with it because I know that this is a burden. Again, if this is part of your lived experience, this is a burden put upon your shoulders. And a burden that for so long, Christians who have felt this experience, this temptation, have had to walk alone. And I want you to know that I'm saying this tonight not because I think this is some like burden I want you to carry or something I don't like about you. I want you to know that this is something that I'm teaching tonight, not because I feel this way, but because I believe the scriptures teach this. This comes right to the core of what it means to be a pastor and a preacher. My job each week isn't to get up and give you my opinion or what I feel or what you want to hear. The scriptures call me an ambassador of Christ. Like in other words, an ambassador who takes a message from a king or a ruler or a prince or a president and brings it to another group of people. That's my job. It's not to come up with the message. It's not to tell you what you want to hear or what I would prefer to say. It's to say what I believe God is telling us in his word. And I want you to know that if I became convinced that same-sex marriage and same-sex sex was not a problem according to the scripture, I would say that. I would say it boldly. I would say it clearly. And I would welcome you into those relationships. This is not some personal prejudice or bigotry or thing that I hold on to. 
This is what I see the scriptures teaching. And so again, how can I ask you to do something? I can only ask you to do something because I know that ultimately this didn't come from me. My job here tonight is to declare what God says, to declare the truth of the scriptures. Next one is the biological question. It's this, if homosexuality isn't a choice, how can it be wrong? Like if I didn't choose this life, if I didn't choose this temptation, if I didn't choose this desire, how can it be wrong? And I want you to know I don't disagree with the premise of this. Like I don't disagree that this isn't a choice. Christians for so long have accused people who have been walking in homosexuality of choosing that. I just don't know anyone that would choose that, desire that, say, I want that kind of pressure, that kind of thing on me. It may not be a choice, but I want you to know that the scriptures do not tell us that if something's not a choice or if it's natural or if it's just a temptation that you didn't choose, it's therefore okay. I want you to know that as a married man, there's temptation for me. There's temptation for me to act on sexual impulses and urges. And just because they're there doesn't mean I should act upon them. I want you to know that for every single human being alive, you have temptations and impulses and natural things inside of you that just because they're there doesn't make them right. Like actually the core teaching of Christian ethics is that there are going to be things you feel or desire or are drawn to that you should say no to, that you should reject. And just because you feel it, and just because it is a very real experience, and I don't want to take that very real experience from you, just because it's there does not mean that it's right, good, holy, or honoring to God. The next one is a moral objection, and this might just be a pointed critique of me. Isn't this just thinly veiled, Hatred, bigotry, and homophobia. And maybe that's what you think tonight. Maybe you're listening to this video podcast and you just think this is just thinly veiled hatred and homophobia and maybe you're not yelling and screaming, but that's just what this is. And here's all I want to invite you toward. I want to invite you toward the kind of life and the kind of faith and the kind of thinking that allows someone to disagree with you deeply and not assume their motives are something that they've not displayed. Listen, in a sermon, I can never convey that I don't hold hatred or bigotry or some kind of fear or or hatred or despising uh, of those who walk in this lifestyle. I don't. Uh, I think of the people I've walked with over the years, the people I've prayed with over the years, the people who have shared their life and their stories and their struggles with me. I hope if you would ask them those questions that they would share with you that I was filled with compassion and love even if they disagreed with me on what I've concluded. But I want you to know that my heart isn't filled with hate or anger. It's filled with compassion and love, driven by the love of Christ and driven by a desire for people to know God's grace and mercy and healing. The next one is a practical one. And here's the practical question I'm asked all the time. Listen, isn't this just one sin among many? Why make such a big deal about it? And here's what I'll say to you. Some Christians make a huge deal about this sin. Some Christians just go on and on. And this is the only thing they talk about constantly. And I hear it and it saddens me. But can I just say this? I don't think it's true that our church has made a big deal of this. Like I said, I've been preaching at this church for 11 years. This is my first sermon talking about this. My first sermon where I've made this the subject of the sermon. I've referenced it in passing, but I don't think you can honestly sit under the teaching of this church and think that we obsess over this particular sin. It is one sin among many. It is not the ultimate sin. It is certainly not an unforgivable sin. But I can say with clarity and with a lot of integrity that this is not something we've obsessed over. It's not something we've made our banner. 
Our banner here has always and will always be about Jesus, his great love for us shown on the cross and in his resurrection. The next objection you might have is this one, a cultural one. If the church doesn't change with the times, won't we just get be left behind? Like if we don't change, won't we just become irrelevant? And my contention to you is this, that actually our job as a church is never to conform to the culture around us, but rather to be faithful to the word of Christ. And that if we are faithful to the word of Christ, God will live and sustain and build his church around us. Listen, I rarely talk about other churches because I know so deeply the flaws of Calvary Community Church. But when I look at this question of shouldn't we get with the times or we'll be left behind, I look at the experiment that has been run in hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of churches across the Western world over the last 70 years. There has been a movement since the 1960s to change the theology of churches to match the times, to get rid of questions of morality and sexuality, to get rid of miracles from the Bible, to get rid of anything in the Bible that doesn't match the modern age. And what I submit to you is those churches have not thrived, they have not grown, they have not reached people with that. They have rather become irrelevant to the culture because in an effort to become relevant to everything our culture believes, they actually become irrelevant. They've actually become just like the culture around them. And if church believes everything everyone else believes anyway, why even listen? Why even lean in? Why even explore? Next question is the political one. Um, Why are you imposing your beliefs, your religious beliefs on politics? I'll answer this one briefly. I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to be in ministry, Lord willing, for another 40, 50 years of my life. I have zero intention of spending any of my time trying to make gay marriage illegal. And some of that, you might be bothered by that. You might be bothered by that because somehow you think, well, if it's wrong, we should make it illegal. And I would submit to you there are all kinds of things that are wrong, but not illegal. It's, I believe it's wrong. I believe it's sinful to dishonor your parents. I don't think we should make that a law. I believe it is sinful. I believe it is wrong to go home every night and get drunk and fall asleep drunk and wake up with a hangover. I don't think we, think we should make that a law. I believe it is wrong. I believe it is sinful to give zero dollars every year to the work of people working with the poor to serve the hungry. But I don't think we should make that a law. Listen, there are plenty of things I don't believe are right. There are plenty of things I think are sinful that I have no intention in codifying into law or spending effort or time into that. I believe the church is called to declare the truth of Jesus. And that is a separate project from what we do politically. Some Christians disagree with me on this. Some Christians don't like this. But again, I believe I have specific call. That's to be an ambassador of Christ. Here's the next one, uh, the historical one. Isn't this just like slavery, where the church changed its mind on the issue? And the basic idea here is um, Christian, uh, the Bible supports slavery. Christians have always supported slavery. But then Christians realized slavery was wrong, so we changed our view on the Bible. And here's what I believe. I believe the first two premises of that argument are false. I don't believe the Bible supports slavery. Uh, I believe the Bible talks about a kind of slavery that has nothing to do with the slavery we experienced here in North America. It's not chattel slavery. It's a different kind of slavery. Not that it was pleasant, not that it was good, but it is a kind of slavery that exists all throughout the world where you would sell yourself into slavery so you could pay off debts. I believe the Bible gives every reason to undermine that kind of slavery. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, where it says about homosexuality, it also condemns those who would trade in slaves. I believe the Bible does not support slavery, and I would also submit to you that historically, the church has been very mixed, has not universally supported slavery. And again, if you want to talk more about that, we can. Uh, And then here's the final one I want to do of these objections. I know this has been a lot, and we've moved quickly, but here's the final objections. We are called to love, and how is calling homosexual eroticism, how is you calling this sin 
loving. And here's what I'd say to you. If I were to create a Venn diagram of love and acceptance, love and affirmation, they would overlap in some ways, but they're not exactly the same. And you know this because there are people in your life who you love deeply, but you do not accept and affirm everything they do. Some of you have a sister who is living a life that you wish she wouldn't live, and you love her and would take a bullet for her, but you don't approve of her actions. Some of you have a brother or a father or a best friend or a college roommate who is doing something you wish they wouldn't do. It grieves you and it harms you, but you love them, but you don't accept that. And so I want to encourage you, for for you to say, I believe homosexual eroticism is sin, is not you saying you're not loving. You can love someone, but not accept and affirm all that they do. And the reason I know that is you already do that in so many different areas of your life. So again, there are so many objections, and I could have gone into more. I could have spent more time on each. And if you want to dialogue about this, I promise you after the service, I will be out in the lobby. Here's what I want to say, though. Listen, the aim of this sermon is to open a conversation, not to close it. There's no way I could have covered everything tonight. There's no way I could have covered every subject and every question this evening. I didn't answer questions of how do we love and serve those who are walking in homosexuality. I didn't answer questions about whether you should go to a wedding or hang out or or any of the cultural issues that come around this question. I didn't answer the question for those of you walking in this right now of how do you love and how do you serve Christ and how do you deal with this weight that has been put upon you. And in future sermons, hopefully we'll be able to answer that. But tonight I tried to answer one question. What does the Bible have to say about homosexuality? But here's what I want you to know as we close our sermon tonight. I would not want you to hear this sermon. And I would not want you to read this passage without reading the next verse. The most important verse that we're going to read tonight is the verse I'm about to read to you. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you're tempted to think that that's the verse, that's the message, that's the punchline. It's not. It goes on this way in verse 11. It says this. It says, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, Paul assumes that there are Christians who used to walk in this. Christians who used to walk in all ten of the sins that he named. That is what some of you were. But then what does Paul say about those Christians? You were washed, you were sanctified like the Holy Spirit is making you like Jesus, and you were justified. In other words, you were made right before God. Your sins were forgiven. You were made a child of God. What is the punchline? What do you need to hear tonight? What do I most passionately want to drive into your brains and your hearts and your souls this evening? It is this statement that homosexual eroticism is not the unforgivable sin. You can be forgiven, redeemed, washed, justified, sanctified. This is what Paul is teaching here. This is not some kind of sin that casts you out of heaven. This is not some kind of sin that casts you out of the family of God. What Paul is arguing here ferociously in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, is that this sin is not unforgivable. In fact, just like every sin, it is forgivable by those who would turn from their sin and trust in their Savior. Let me put it this way to you tonight. It's like Jesus creates this table. Jesus creates this family. And he's going to welcome you to this table. And the only prerequisite to you coming to this table is that you would turn from your sin and trust in your Savior. Can I put it this way to you tonight? That Jesus welcomes repentant sinners 
to his table. That's who Jesus welcomes to his table. It's not the perfect people. It's not the people who have never struggled. Jesus welcomes all of us to the table. And tonight, that's who I want to welcome to the table. I want to welcome you to the table, to the table of Christ tonight. If you have repented of your sin and trusted in your Savior. If tonight you are walking and part of your lived experience, part of your life is homosexuality, you are welcome to the table when you repent. If you are listening tonight and you are a Christian and you struggle in some other area, when you turn from your sin, you are welcome to the table. If you are someone who disagrees so strongly and you're so mad at me right now, you're so upset with this church, Jesus says you're welcome to the table. See, this is the invitation for all of us to know that what we are talking about here tonight is a Jesus who welcomes everyone to his table. Listen to me, let me just say this. There is no part of me that doubts that after tonight's sermon, there will be little circles of you talking in this room or in the lobby or in cars or in and out or at your homes or later this week about your opinions, reactions, feelings, and emotions toward this sermon. Some of you are going to be angry at me and we can handle that anger. Some of you are going to be confused and upset. Some of you are going to be celebrating and like, yeah, there's going to be all kinds of different things. But can I encourage you wherever you're at tonight, Wherever the conversation goes, can one of you in every conversation be the one who brings the conversation back to this image? Like this is the point tonight. Like wherever it goes tonight, can you just say, yeah, whatever was said in there, the point, the idea, the main thing that we're talking about tonight is the fact that Jesus welcomes us to his table, not because of our good works, but because of his, not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's. That's what I hope we talk about tonight. Like, like, listen, I, we have talked about homosexuality. We have talked about hard things. We have talked about what the scripture said. But I don't want you for a minute to believe that this church will ever make its focus anything other than the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your sins and for your salvation. So here's what Jesus did. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread And I want to invite you all across this room. If you know Jesus, if you've turned from your sin and repented from your sin and trusted in him, to take the communion elements we gave you tonight. See, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And here's what he said to his disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Like in other words, what the scripture says, every time I eat this bread, every time I drink this cup, every time I come to communion, I remember that the body of Christ was broken for me on the cross so that I would never have to be. I want to invite you tonight to eat this bread in remembrance of the body of Christ broken for you for the sins of the world, no matter what they are. Let's take and eat in remembrance of him. In the same way that night, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the new arrangement between human beings and God poured out for the forgiveness of sin. This is the cup of my blood. We remember when we go to the cup that Jesus shed his blood for us, for us and our salvation. We remember that the only way into heaven isn't to be good, isn't to be moral, isn't to follow all the rules of the Bible, but rather to receive the blood of Jesus Christ, for the blood of Christ to be applied to our hearts so that we might be rescued and redeemed now and forevermore. Let's take the cup tonight and drink in remembrance of him.
Again, there will be so many reactions, feelings, thoughts, and emotions to the sermon tonight. But whatever happens, whatever you feel, whatever you have to say, may you eventually route your mind and your soul and your heart back to a table where Christ Jesus the Lord invites all of us, where he invites us to know his salvation, his forgiveness, his mercy, and his healing. As we stand and sing in a moment, we're gonna sing a new song called Thank You Jesus for the Blood. It's gonna talk about the blood applied, this blood of Jesus, this forgiveness of sins applied to our life. It celebrates the centrality of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ given for our sins and our salvation. In a moment, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna invite us after that to stand and sing about the table of Christ that invites all of us to find healing, hope, and salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. God, if there was any part of tonight where I got in the way, where my sin, my flesh, my failure, anything about me got in the way, God, I just pray you would eliminate that from our minds and hearts. God, if there was any part of tonight that was true and filled with your spirit and filled with your goodness, I pray that that would drive deeply into all of our hearts. God, I pray that you would form in this church a place that's willing to wrestle with hard things, willing to wrestle with the truth of the scripture, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when we don't like it, even when we don't see it or get it or want it. God, help us tonight to worship filled with your spirit. Help us to be filled with truth. Help this to be a church, to be a place that stands upon your word and is filled with compassion and love and grace and kindness toward the struggler. God, I pray for the person tonight who's been wrestling, struggling, walking in, has a history of everything we've talked about tonight, homosexuality. God, I pray that they would know above everything else when they stand up and walk out of this room tonight, when they turn off the stream, that you love them, you care about them, and you're with them now and forevermore. God, for them, for me, for all of us, we thank you that you invite us to the table, call us your children, forgive us our sins, and save us forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said,